Amen. Those are sobering thoughts, friends, as we come before God's Word to hear it. Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, as we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. We're now at chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Uh, very briefly, before we read the text, we, we've seen... Um, Paul deal with two major problems and tonight a third. In, in the first four chapters, we saw the first problem. He had to correct their boasting in one another instead of boasting in the Lord. And he went on at length about that. Then last week, Dr. Bruce uh, took us through chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul had to correct their community, their Christian community, tolerating immorality in one another instead of calling each other to purity in the Lord. And tonight we see that they are suing one another in civil court instead of bearing patiently with one another because of the Lord. And so tonight we think about how we treat one another, especially when we've been hurt or injured by one another. Let me invite you to consider that from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous? Instead of the saints. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? The brother goes to law against brother, that before unbelievers, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father, we pray, uh, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, save us, we pray. Spare us, rescue us, rescue us from our sins, rescue us from ourselves, rescue us from all evil, and deliver us into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus and the fullness of our inheritance in him. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Give us understanding for his glory. Amen. How do we treat people when they hurt us? Do we demand our rights? Stand on our dignity and demand that they give us what they owe us. Hope that they get what's coming to them. Seek revenge. Take vengeance. Is that how we do it? Uh, Growing up as the youngest of five children who were all close in age together, anytime there was a uh, last piece of food or especially dessert (laughs) and more than one person wanted it, we had a ritual to make things fair. One person cut the last piece, and the other person decided which piece they wanted. (laughs) Now, uh, when you cut, you tried to be extremely exact, extremely just, or you'd end up giving them more than you got for yourself. See, the goal was to get your fair share. I demand my piece of the pie, we said with our actions. (laughs) In my wife's household growing up, the Hoover household, it was different. With three sisters, no brothers, slightly less competitive, and much greater span of age between them spread out, there was, oh, uh, a sweeter disposition at the table. Uh, They ate until they had all they wanted. Now, I'm not sure, but maybe they had more food on the table. They uh, never fought over who got the last piece, I'm told, uh, or over splitting it fairly, but then they will admit they sometimes did express shock later when it was discovered that the final piece finally was gone, and they oftentimes accused someone, whoever, that took that piece, that, quote, they ate the whole thing! (laughs) So, um... You know, we have different ways of handling problems and rivalry and competition and our desire to get what's coming to us according to our standard, don't we? I guess, um, I guess in my own household now, we tend to follow the Wenger pattern. I'm often encouraging it anyway, but not always. And uh, sometimes food or last pieces of dessert just disappear. Sometimes you open the refrigerator and there's the empty pan. And no one really knows how the last piece disappeared. And it's not always the kid's fault. Someone is usually sure to be disappointed. I I guess parents struggle with how to help kids get along even over who gets their cut of the pie. Well, now the old, I know that's a bit humorous and maybe too long, but you know, the older we get, things don't get easier. Life gets more sophisticated. The fights have greater consequences, if especially 
we feel we're being treated unfairly or somebody else thinks they've been treated unfairly. And when you add money into it or property and the division doesn't seem quite right, boy, we can get blown out of shape and we can press for our rights to get what belongs, we say, to us. And that's not just true today. That was true in Corinth among these Christians then. And Paul says something that ought to shock us here. He basically says, if you understood the gospel and you were living in line with the gospel, you wouldn't be pressing your rights with one another. You'd be giving it away. You would willingly bear patiently as others in the body of Christ might even cause you to suffer. That's what he says to them, if you understood the gospel. So we want to walk through this passage. I want to do it in three parts. Let me just outline it for you in the first place. In verses 1 through 8, you have this sin. You have their failure. He highlights it. In verses 9 and 10, you have him speak of their danger. And then in verse 11, you have him speak of a remedy. So, uh, again, verses 1 through 8, there's this failure. You know, verse 1, you go to court against one another, you sue one another. But then at verse 9, he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? And he begins to describe that. He's talking about the danger of missing out on the coming kingdom of Christ in all its glory. But then at verse 11, he says, but such were some of you and Better things have happened, and so I have better hopes for you. So that's God's remedy, and so we want to return to these three big things. In the first place, verses 1 to 8, the failure of Christians to get along with one another. Paul here in verses 1 to 8 describes a situation in which they are going to court with one another, and he, he first speaks of that very particular sin, which I just don't know if that's even an issue any among us have had to struggle with. Perhaps so. I don't know. But he goes behind that particular sin to the general principle that actually was driving the behavior. And there, I think, we'll all identify. Let me show you what I mean by that. In the first place, um, the particular sin is in verse 1, the behavior of suing one another in civil court. But at verse 7, he speaks of the the heart attitude that lay behind that. Okay, in the first place, the particular sin. They were suing one another. Here's his opening question to them, or problem as he describes it. One of you is a grievance against another. Does he dare to go before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Instead of the saints. Um, they weren't working things out between themselves, brother to brother, sister to sister. Uh, Maybe they had tried, but they had obviously failed in their efforts if they had tried. And they weren't taking it to the church to seek help. He actually reaches out and tweaks the nose of the whole congregation and says, isn't there somebody wise enough? Isn't not one person among you wise enough that you could go to who can help you resolve this issue? Now remember, for four chapters, they were boasting in how wise they were. And he'd been trying to tell them, well, you guys are fools. And now he, he reaches out and he says, you're so wise and you can't find one person who can sort of mediate your problems? And they wouldn't go to the church for help. And so Paul sees this as tragic 
and as a, a horrible example to the world and a betrayal of the gospel itself. And so he poses a series of questions to them about this. And I, I just as a aside, it was fascinating to me to see the way that he forms his argument. Because actually what he does is he just piles questions upon questions on them. Almost like he's taking them to court. And as the prosecutor, they're in the box. And he's just saying, now, dear Christians, did you in fact yada, yada, yada? And did you yada, yada, yada? And did you not understand this, that, and the other? It's, it's, uh, it, it, it may be Paul's way of saying, well, you know, you're a church that loves to go to war with one another in the court. It reminds you of how unpleasant that actually is. Or maybe you love prosecutors, so let me be one for you. And I should say, you know, before we just kind of go, well, that's so weird and strange. I mean, why, why a community that just loved to, to sue one another and were fascinated with law? We actually live in a culture like that. I don't know how much it seeped into this congregation and in your life, but we're, I mean, we have TV shows where you can watch the courtroom and all its ridiculous drama, Judge Judy, Judge Joe Brown, I mean, law and order, the, half, the second half of the show is entirely about what happens in the courtroom, and it's like the longest running show in, or nearly in TV history. Um, we're fascinated, too, by what goes on in the courtroom and how is justice going to prevail and are the bad guys really going to get it stuck to them and are the good guys going to win? Well, they were fascinated with this, and so Paul takes the role of a prosecutor. In nine verses, the first nine verses, he asks ten questions. He didn't make a whole lot of statements. He asks questions. Now, in doing so, let me say this. What's Paul not doing? Paul, in accusing them, saying, you dare to go as brother to brother into a civil court, Paul is not saying he is against the idea of civil or criminal courts run by governments. He's not against that. The Bible isn't against that. He's not against Christians serving in court if you get called for jury duty. You don't have a conscientious objection based on Paul's words here. It's actually good to serve your government in those ways. God has ordained legal authorities, and there are occasions when that's beneficial. Paul is not saying here uh, either that unbelievers, or whom he speaks of as the unrighteous, those outside the church, he's not saying, well, you know, those people really can't uncover truth like Christians can. That's not what he's saying. That's not his argument. His argument isn't, well, you can't get justice among non-Christians. Though, though every day people leave courts and they think justice was not served, right? Some do walk away thinking justice was served, and in some cases, justice actually prevails. Paul isn't critiquing that here. Paul, in fact, in Acts chapter 18, in his ministry, is an example of this. Uh, he was brought before the courts by some angry Jews... And Gallio makes a very wise and fair ruling in Paul's favor in Acts chapter 18. So he's not saying unbelievers are incapable of making good decisions. That's not his argument. Um, he's not saying that believers have no business resorting to, or to making use of secular legal system in certain situations. And again, he's an example of this in Acts chapter 25 when he appealed to Caesar to have his case tried 
in a higher court. He appealed to Caesar. When faced with a choice, he didn't just blow things off or uh, refuse to use or take advantage of the court system, the Roman court system of his own day. He used it in a just way, making an appeal that it was right to make as a Roman citizen. You can't treat me the way you're treating me. I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar, he said. Now, here's the deal. In Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 25, in each of those situations, it was a matter between believers and unbelievers. But here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, this is a situation in which believers are to handle and respond to other believers internally over matters like this. Paul's not against Christians defending themselves in civil courts where appropriate. He's not against Christians suing non-Christians in civil courts if the need arises, nor Christians defending themselves from non-Christians in court if the need arises. He's just saying Christians shouldn't sue fellow Christians in civil courts, but instead get the church to help them resolve their differences. And so it was a failure to work things out and a failure to seek help in the church and a failure to find someone who was wise among them. And he says, I say this to your shame. But he doesn't just talk about the specific sin in that case. He actually gets behind it to what was going on. And this is where maybe you'll track with it a little bit better. He speaks of the failure, not just in the courts, but the failure in the heart. And here's the more general problem. To go to court in the first place, Paul says, is a defeat for you. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? What should they have done? Suffer wrong. Be defrauded. So what's going on in their hearts? They're seeking to assert their rights over and against one another. I will get what belongs to me. And we all feel the desire to do that maybe every day. But it's not how Jesus taught his disciples to live. In Matthew chapter 5, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, If anyone, to his disciples, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You ever lose a book or an item of clothing or a movie because somebody asked to borrow it and you haven't seen it since? You were right to give it to them. Give generously instead of clinging to what's yours is what God wants for his own disciples. But their attitude was, I will not share it with you. I will not give it to you. I will not be willing to get the short end of the stick for you. No, I will have what is mine. I will keep what belongs to me. And you better pay me what you owe me. I don't care if you get a piece of the pie. I just better get mine. Now, And that, Paul says, and Jesus says, is a failure of love among brothers. A failure to be generous, 
a failure to bear patiently with the sins of others against us with great patience and mercy, even when it costs us to do so. And what they wanted was strict justice. And what Paul wants is the gospel of mercy to rule and reign in their relationships. So Paul considers their failure a, a failure against the gospel. And we'll come back to that point as our last point. So here they are. They're fighting one another to make others among them suffer. And granted, verse 8, you yourselves, he says, are wrong, wrong and defraud. He's acknowledging that among them there are those who are doing these things. And it's wrong. And so he goes on to warn them, verses 9 and 10, and we'll look at this next. He goes on to warn them that if they live like this, if they live like this, wronging and defrauding others as a lifestyle, as a habit of life, they don't repent, they don't turn, well, then they are in danger. Look at verses 9 and 10. Do you not know, he says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, who's he just been speaking of? Those who wrong and defraud. They're unrighteous. That's why they're on his mind. Do not be deceived. Neither, he says, the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. He actually uses two words there, speaking of both the one who receives and the one who is the active partner in a consensual homosexual relationship. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, he says, will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, you are in danger Potentially, if this describes you, you are in danger. How is this related to the topic he's been talking about? In chapter 5, there was a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. It was incest. And they had to put him out of the church. They had to say, basically, dear friend, we don't think you're a brother in the faith. You can't go on and live like this and do this. You can't claim to be a Christian and continue. Likewise, here in chapter 6, you can't wrong and defraud one another and, and, and claim to be a Christian and have hopes of inheriting the kingdom. So he warns them, those who live in a lifestyle in open rebellion against God are in danger. And Paul moves from the specific sin of money and property here to a whole collection of sins based on the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, yes, the behavior itself is wrong. The behavior is not unforgivable. But he's not just saying that the behavior is wrong. He's actually saying the person is wrong. They are not right or righteous with God. But they are unright or unrighteous with God. And that is why they shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says, instead of being right with God, you may be unright. And the warning is very strong. Do not be deceived. Don't let anybody tell you differently. And the warning is very clear. Some will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some who think that they will. And so he calls the ones who won't unrighteous. Or some of your translations, wicked. Who's he describing here? How are they described? How are the unrighteous described? They are people, he says, who have no inheritance in God's coming glorious kingdom. These are people, he says, to whom that kingdom does not belong. As people who don't belong to God, 
They don't receive the kingdom and the inheritance that comes from God. They don't receive the inheritance because they aren't children of God. And children who, uh, people who aren't children don't get the parents' inheritance. That's his point. They don't belong to God. They're not his children, so they don't get the inheritance. How do you know that they're not his children? Because of the behavior that manifests itself as a lifestyle in open rebellion against the Father. They don't bear the resemblance of the Father. They, don't, they haven't begun to love what God loves, to love righteousness and to hate wickedness. But rather, they are, he says, the unrighteous. Now, here's the question. Who is righteous and who is unrighteous? Well, no one, the Bible would say to you, is righteous. Romans chapter 3, Paul clearly says there is no one righteous. No, not one. Not among the children of man, born of natural descent from Adam and Eve. All of us are unrighteous in ourselves. The prophet Isaiah says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And he uses the very descriptive expression, like a woman's dirty menstrual cloth. That's your righteousness. And we are forever holding up what we think is our righteousness in the face of God and saying, look at me, I'm great. And God turns his face away because there is no one righteous. No, not one. How then can he say... The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God and leave us believing that there are some who are righteous. Well, because there is one who is righteous, who is that he is the righteous one. He is Jesus Christ himself who knew no sin, who was flawless and perfect and obeyed in every way. He is the righteous one and you can be righteous in him. You're never going to be righteous in yourself Unless he makes you that way and that awaits yet glory. But you can be right now righteous in him. He'd already told us this back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 30 and 31. When he says God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness. And our sanctification and our redemption. Jesus is for any and all who believe in him. He is our righteousness. He's our rightness and right standing with God. So Paul says, don't be deceived. Your personal sin disqualifies you for the inheritance. But a lack of personal sin does not qualify you for, for the inheritance because nobody lacks personal sin. All have sinned. Together we have turned away. So we are left out of the inheritance because of our unrighteousness. But we don't get the inheritance because of our own righteousness. The only way to inherit the kingdom is to be given as a gift righteousness in Christ. And so the Bible says turn from your sins, turn from your self-righteous sin, turn from leaning on your own good works to be right with God and believe in Jesus who is right with God, and you and God are good. 
God is right with you and you are right with God. Jesus suffers the penalty your sin deserves so that you can inherit. And Jesus is all the righteousness required for you to inherit. Now the question that follows that is this. Well, does becoming righteous in Christ, does it change us? Does it make us any different? Or do we remain in all our unrighteousness, going on living lives characterized as he described them here in this chapter? And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list of those who are outside of the kingdom. Revelation 21 and 22 is a list. Galatians 5 is a list. And not all the lists are identical. But he describes, as we read, all these different kinds of lifestyles. Paul isn't singling out here homosexuality. All of them, he says, are misusing God's good gifts. Sex, alcohol, money, whatever it is. They are grasping at what God has forbidden. And they go on in them, unrepentantly. Paul isn't saying here that somebody who has committed adultery can never be saved or inherit the kingdom. Paul isn't saying here that somebody who who has swindled others out of money, can never be saved. I mean, King David was an adulterer who was saved. Zacchaeus was a swindler who was saved. Paul isn't saying those who have committed homosexual acts can't be saved. Such were some of them, Paul says to them. But David and Zacchaeus and the Corinthians had left this lifestyle behind in repentance. There are some here who look at Paul's list and are tempted to say to themselves, you know, I just don't see myself on this list at all. Maybe a lot of children look at this list and have that buzzing around in their head. But some of us, some adults who grew up moral in nice Christian homes or even Good non-Christian homes say, this just doesn't describe me. Like a friend of mine was telling me this weekend, uh, a, a youth minister who'd shared the gospel for weeks and weeks and weeks with his friend. And at the end of it said, do you understand what we're saying? Yes. Well, do you want to be saved? And he said, no. And the, the, the guy said, well, why? And he said, well, I'm not a sinner. Doesn't apply to me. I don't need a savior. Maybe that's how you view yourself as you look at this list. But don't misunderstand. Paul, Paul has already included you in this list. These are just the particular examples of the category of those who are unrighteous. And there is no one who is righteous. All are unrighteous. And you may express your sin differently than I express my sin. Yours has, may, not, may not have been as public, as humility. Humiliating, as shameful, as disturbing, as destructive of personal relationships as some of the sins listed here. As uh, one person put it, to use the language of Alcoholics Anonymous, everybody's recovering, however, from something, if you're recovering at all. You may be recovering from substance abuse as an abuser, or you may be recovering from homosexual behavior or you may be recovering as a thief, or you may be recovering from whatever it is, some sinful pattern not on this list, perhaps just simply ignoring God, perhaps just simply trusting yourself to be right with God. But the reality is, in the biblical view, all of us are recovering sinners of one description or another 
from all sorts of things. And we will be all the rest of our lives until we go to be with Jesus. But we must repent. You cannot think you can go on living this way. Do not be deceived. The life manifests and demonstrates that not all who receive the word bear fruit. Not all who claim to be Christian are true Christian. And some who may think they're a child of God will not inherit the kingdom. Because a child of God has begun to be like their father in heaven. They've begun to love righteousness as he does. They've begun to be givers as he is. They've begun to show mercy as he does. They've begun to bear patiently with the wrongs of others. Because they've begun to bear the marks of belonging to Jesus. They aren't perfectly like Jesus in any way. But they have begun. And they want to be more like Jesus. And you may be struggling with all the heart sins that lie behind these behaviors. And that, my friends, is extremely understandable. Because you're never done with sin in this life. But if this list describes you as a habit of life, this is the pattern of life, then Paul says, be warned, you are in danger of missing out on the kingdom of heaven. These are all sins which can merit excommunication from the Lord's church, where the body of Christ would look and say, we love you, friend, but your life says you're not a brother. And so there's a danger here, but there is a remedy, and there is hope. There is grace. There is good news. And it's in verse 11. And he says a variety of things here. Notice in the first place, he says, would you remember what God did for the Corinthians? All these things that Paul had just described Christians must not be and do in verses 9 and 10. Paul goes on to say, and that's what some of you were. What a glorious thing that the church at Corinth was filled with people who defrauded others in business. Who had worshipped idols who had given themselves over to drink and drunkenness, who had participated in sexually impure lives in varieties of kinds of ways. And then God called them into his kingdom. God had mercy on them in Jesus. He caused them to be born anew, to come to life and become a child of God and to begin to live a new way of living. How gloriously encouraging that is. God loves to save messy people who have messy lives. And if God can save them, God can save you. And friends, this is so encouraging that the church is messy because God likes to save messy people. Are we, dear friends, glad when people with messy lives are part of our community and are hearing the gospel? Can we rejoice in that? We ought to. Can we give people with messy lives the freedom to visit and hear the good news and process it And figure out how they need to respond to it. Can we do that? We'd better. Such were some of us. I'm delighted to be part of a church. Where there are people among us. Who have struggled with all kinds of these things. How dare we not extend the grace of the gospel. The grace that we ourselves have received. So Paul says, remember the Corinthians, but then he says, remember what God did for all Christians. 
Because God did what he did for them, he does for all. And what is that? What did he do? He says, but such were some of you, verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. What's he saying? He's saying, on the one hand, the filth of your sin was rinsed away. Because the filth of your sin was smeared on Jesus. And he bore it away on a garbage dump called Calvary where they took out the trash. He became, he who was clean became unclean so that you and him could become clean. But then he says, and you were sanctified. When you were far away from God, God brought you near. When you didn't belong to God, he set you apart for God. And what did that cost? It cost Jesus everything. He got left out. He got abandoned on the cross. He suffered the hell of God's wrath. So you would be spared and claimed as God's own. But you weren't just sanctified and set apart for God. You were justified. Jesus was condemned so that you could be forgiven. He obeyed so his perfection could be yours. So you could be accepted as right in the eyes of God. You got all this, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Spirit of God took what belonged to Jesus and gave it to you. And he took what belonged to you and he gave it to Jesus. So you're free. So you're welcomed. So you could be changed. Thank God then that you didn't get strict justice in your case. How then can we go on thinking that strict justice is the most important thing? How can we require of others that we get strict justice from them? When we got mercy and generosity from God and the strict justice we deserved was placed on Christ. And so he says, dear friends, bear patiently with one another. Even the offenses of your brothers and sisters and Jesus against you, even though it cost you, because that is exactly what Jesus did for you. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you. We praise you for our Savior. And we pray you'd make us more like him. Give us a heart like Jesus for one another. In his name I pray, amen.